Welcome to episode 272 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, biohacker and author of What Win Wine. Lose weight and feel great with paleo-style meals, intermittent fasting, and wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Cynthia Thurlow, nurse practitioner and author of Intermittent Fasting Transformation, the 45-day program for women to lose stubborn weight, improve hormonal health, and slow aging. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and cynthiatherlow.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this show do not constitute medical advice or treatment, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. So, pour yourself a mug of black coffee, a cup of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi friends, I'm about to tell you how to get my favorite electrolytes for free, plus special announcement, Element's new chocolate medley is here. So when you think electrolytes, you might think summer and hot times and needing to stay hydrated. But did you know that hydration is actually super important in cold weather as well? There's an idea out there that cold weather reduces our hydration needs. That's not true. So in the cold, two main things can actually increase our metabolic rate. You may be working harder, tramping through the snow, and you can be wearing cumbersome winter clothing that can actually raise your energy needs by 10 to 20%. And as your metabolic rate raises, your sweat rate raises, and you need to replace those fluids with electrolytes. You also lose more water when it's cold through your breath. That's because cold temperatures contain significantly less water than hot temperatures, AKA it's drier outside. When you breathe in that cold, dry air, your respiratory system actually acts like a humidifier so that your body can be warm and humid like it likes to be. Of course, that drains your hydration reserves as well. One study actually found that respiratory water loss after a full day of activity nearly doubled at freezing temperatures compared to the 70s. On top of that, when you're cold, you actually become less thirsty, possibly from blood vessel constrictions in the cold, which can trick the body into thinking the blood volume is higher than it is. In other words, it's cold out there. You probably need hydration and electrolytes are so key for all of these cellular processes in your body, all of your energy production. It all requires electrolytes, but it can be hard to find electrolytes, which are clean without unnecessary fillers and which you can feel good about drinking. That's why I love Element. There's a reason I'm obsessed with it. There's a reason all you guys are as well. And like I said, I'm so excited because Element's new chocolate medley is here featuring chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. And this is a limited time, so you definitely want to stock up on these now. Plus, you can get a free gift with purchase when you purchase that chocolate medley or other Element electrolytes. That's right, you can get a free sample pack, eight single serving packets for free with any Element order. It's a great way to try all eight flavors or share Element with a salty friend. You can get yours at drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast. That's drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast. By the way, those chocolates in that chocolate medley make delicious hot chocolates. And of course, as always, Element has a no questions asked refund, so you have nothing to lose. So go to drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast to get your free electrolytes. 
One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 272 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Cynthia Thurlow. Hey, Melanie, how are you today? I'm good. How about you? I'm great. In three days, I will be on vacation with my family. This is very exciting. It is really exciting. And the most exciting part that I've realized is that now my children are old enough that they have to get all their clothing and all of their things together without my help. Oh, that's nice. It's a huge milestone. So for 17 years, I have been packing for people for trips. And now technically I'm guiding two and I'm only packing one. And that's very exciting. I should, after this, call my mother and thank her for all the time she did that. (laughs) I think my favorite part of traveling when we were little was everything she would 
pack us for like the plane ride. And I, I used to do all that. And now, you know, I've got two surly yet wonderful teenage boys. And, you know, other than making sure I've got one EpiPen packed and a couple, you know, in sundry things, they're very, fairly independent. Let me make, I, I provide that qualifier, but it's kind of, I marvel now when we get on planes that I don't have to, let me just backtrack. When you have younger children, it's like, I don't want them to have a poopy diaper. I don't want them to make a lot of noise. I don't want them to scream. Now they are quiet and they either eat or they're attached to their iPads. And it's very pleasant. Very, very pleasant. Does one of them have a life-threatening allergy? Yes. My 16-year-old has peanut and tree nut allergies, which, you know, he's, if I had to pick a child to have a food allergy, and I would not, of course, want either of my children to have a food allergy, but he is by far the most conscientious of the two. And so he navigates pretty well, very responsible. So now he's at the age where he can carry his own EpiPen, but I always have a backup. And, you know, he navigates his carnivorous world really nicely. And so when we travel, it's, you know, it's always the, let's hope it's the airline that doesn't serve peanuts as a snack. Are there airlines that still serve Occasionally I see that. And I generally, like when I get on the plane, I just politely ask, you know, there is a, there is a person on the airplane that, you know, an aerosolized peanut could be a problem if you're on a long flight. So I have never had a problem. People have always been super respectful of that, thankfully. Like what will set it off? Well, you know, it's interesting. So he's gotten, so every couple of years they do RAST testing, which is really looking at provoking the inflammatory response in the blood. And so what's been interesting is that his results have never gotten better over the years. And so it's kind of like in the hierarchy of nuts, it's like walnut and hazelnut and then peanut. And then, you know, almonds don't even register, but I just don't ever want to take the chance. And so from our perspective, he's only had one confirmed contact with a tree nut, which was probably... I don't know, eight years ago, and he vomited violently and, you know, had some wheezing and it was all like incredibly scary. And then he had a, actually had a second exposure, even though we were really diligent when we went to a restaurant explaining what his allergies were. And he had the whole, like his lips started to tingle and his tongue started to tingle. And then of course we go down the rabbit hole of, you know, how do we, you know, how far are we from a hospital? And you know, do we making sure we have the EpiPen and, you know, trying to get things on board to help, you know, quiet the inflammatory response, the histamine response. And it's scary. It's interesting because teenage boys are the most likely to trigger an anaphylactic episode because they think they're completely impervious to anything. You know, their, their frontal lobe isn't fully developed. And, you know, I worry more about him when he starts navigating life outside of our house and dating and, you know, the exposures he can get there. And his allergies have never gotten better. And when we looked into peanut desensitization, he would have to do it for the rest of his life. Like you do a series of, you know, these immunological therapies and then it it resolves itself. It's like forever. And he said, I don't want to do that. He's like, I'd rather just avoid. So one of the last serving jobs that I had, and this was in L.A., it was at a, a really nice steakhouse and the one of the managers had a peppermint allergy. So they said, you can't have peppermint. So like my thing, as listeners know, and I might've told this story on this show before, I'm obsessed with my peppermint breath spray. Like I make it out of peppermint essential oil and water. And it's like a thing on this podcast, by the way, people make it. We have links to the way I make it in ifpodcast.com slash stuff we like. 
So I have this spray with me all day, every day. I use it all day, every day. I have like an oral breath, like fresh breath fixation. So they said you can't have peppermint. And I was like, okay, but but I can have like peppermint spray. Like I didn't, I was like, it can't be that big of a deal. So all I did was use the peppermint spray while working and he had to go to the hospital. Like I was like, oh, and then it was like a running joke. And they're like, it's fine. It's not a big deal. Like this happens with new servers. Like (laughs) I felt so bad. I felt terrible. I brought him like the next day, like this like massive gift of like wine. He's like, I can't accept this. I was like, you have to like, (laughs) I'm so sorry. So yeah, that stuff can be serious. It really can be. And had I not seen the impact as a nurse in the ER many years ago, I would never have understood how significant it can be. I I just saw too many anaphylactic episodes. So for anyone that's listening and isn't familiar with that term, it's like the most life-threatening response to an allergen. And unfortunately, we're seeing more and more of this. And only like 30% of kids outgrow their food allergies. So it's a really small percentage. So there's so many people navigating young adulthood and adulthood with food allergies. And so, yeah, it's it's surprising how the body can manifest exposure to specific allergens. It's really humbling, quite honestly. Like had I not had a child with a life-threatening food allergy, I think my life would have been very different because it changed everything for me. I just didn't view the world as a safe place anymore when I kept thinking like we could go anywhere and he could get an exposure and what's going to happen. I don't want to be jabbing my two-year-old with an EpiPen. I mean, obviously it would, I would have done it if I needed to. It definitely can be frightening as a parent. And I think it's just, it's one of those things, unless you've experienced it, like you did with your, your boss, you probably can't even appreciate how significant it can be. Yeah. I mean, in a way, I'm glad that I had that experience because I will really, really respect that going forward. And now I'm just thinking, I bet in the future of healthcare way down the road, I feel like they'll probably come up with something where they literally, I mean, I really, I understand that like the the allergy desensitization is sort of this technique, but I wonder if in the future there'll be a process where it literally just tells the immune system, Hey, this isn't a big deal. Like, you know, like an instant shift. I hope so. I mean, I I just think there are a lot of families that are navigating. I know I felt fear and overwhelm, even as a healthcare professional, because my son's allergist resounding words were carry an EpiPen and pray. And I was like, who wants to hear that when they find out their two-year-old has life-threatening food allergies? It's like the last thing you want to hear. And there's plenty of people that are hearing the same information from their allergists. And it's uh, hopefully... There, there is something coming. There's some amain, amazing immunologist, allergist out there that's going to revolutionize the way that we look at food allergies. I bet there is. Did you read Dr. Jason Fung's The Cancer Code? I did. This was not allergies, but I feel like the last, like the last part of his book had really interesting information about immunotherapy for cancer. Like and just modulation of the immune system and such. Yeah, it, I mean it's it's interesting because it's such a departure from kind of the conventional allopathic model that has been the norm over the last fifty years. I, I think Jason's brilliant, and I'm so glad that he got people interested in having different types of conversations around cancer therapies because, you know, and I, I did you interview? Why am I drawing a total blank? Sam Apple. No, he kind of brought back. Warburg's 
research on the cancer model that is is more aligned with, you know, Jason Fung's book and was moving away from DNA-based or genetic-mediated types of cancers. And so he was a Jewish scientist in the midst of World War II. And for some reason, Hitler took a liking to him and allowed him to continue his research. And, and the book is really interesting. I'll have to share it with you. Wait, how old is he now? Because you asked me if I interviewed him. He's dead. Yeah, no, no, Warburg. No, Sam Apple is the author. I was like... I'm so confused about this timeline. <laughs> Sorry. No, Sam Apple is the author and he's kind of like a research scientist. Yes. Warburg is the... Oh, what is his book called? Does it have the word Warburg in the title? I'm terrible with names. So Melanie knows this about me. Like it's it's a struggle. I've been this way my whole life. Sometimes I have these moments where I'm like, I can't remember. I can see the cover. I'll have to share it with you separately. Ravenous. Otto Warburg, The Nazis and the Search for the Cancer Diet Connection. It was very interesting. That sounds like a health page turner. Sometimes, you know, a lot of times Melanie and I, our, our podcasts overlap with guests and sometimes it doesn't. But I kept thinking, I was like, I don't know if you've interviewed him. I have not. There were some moments in Jason's book where I was like, dun, dun, dun. Like I was so, I was so invested. He does really nice reveals. The nuance that I didn't realize until reading his book was that the big paradigm shift that happened with Warburg was re-understanding because basically the Warburg effect is the idea that cancer cells use glycol. Wait, they use glycolysis, right? So they're running on glucose rather than fat. Jason talks about how they're actually, it's not because they can't burn fat. It's because they're choosing to burn sugar, which is very interesting to me. Well, and you think about like in the 1950s, it was when Crick and Watson discovered the DNA helix. And so that really shifted, you know, shifted research in a totally different direction. And so yet, you know, we're coming back to, you know, a principle that has been around for 80 years that largely have been left unrevealed, undiscovered, rediscovered. I have to think about that. Hiding. I don't know. Hiding. Hiding probably because of the context in which that research was ongoing. Oh, yeah. Literally hiding. <laughs> well, for listeners, we'll put links to all of this in the show notes. And again, the show notes will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 272. Shall we jump into everything for today? Absolutely. All right. So to start things off, we actually have some listener feedback, and this comes from Sarah. And Sarah says, I want to thank you. Several months ago, I got a CGM from Nutrisense, and I realized my fasting blood sugar was higher than it should be. The Nutrisense dietitian was encouraging me to eat breakfast earlier to help with high blood sugar in the morning. I just knew that couldn't be the answer. For months, I reached out to you, Benjamin Bickman, Cynthia Thurlow, and another doctor. I just couldn't figure it out. I heard your interview with Dr. Rick Johnson, and that was so amazing. Then you guys talked about an interview with Peter Atia and David Perlmutter, and that was also amazing. I bought Nature Wants Us to Be Fat, and for listeners, that is Rick Johnson's book. Guess what changed? I started drinking more water and stopped eating dark chocolate with sugar at night. Well, I cut out all sugar. I also started taking vitamin C. That's it. I have lowered my blood sugars to the mid-90s. I couldn't be happier. This could have potentially been so bad down the road and so much harder to deal with. 
So that's some pretty cool feedback from Sarah. For listeners, I had Rick Johnson on the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Cynthia had Rick Johnson on Everyday Wellness. And I said last week that it was going to be this week, but I was incorrect in the lineup. Next week, Rick Johnson is actually going to be on this podcast. So this is a really great teaser question for next week's episode. You definitely want to check it out. But Rick has some very, very interesting information surrounding the role of sugar and fructose and metabolic health. And in particular, Sarah was talking about some things that he talks about to help with all of that, particularly the role of vitamin C. But super happy for you, Sarah, that you're able to to solve the issue. And also I like the feedback about how, because if you have an, a CGM from Nutrisense, you do get to work with a dietitian who can help you with your results and what they mean to make suggestions. And it's nice that Sarah was able to work with them, but also knew that for her personally, those suggestions weren't probably going to, they weren't what, what resonated with her. So I'm glad that she was able to find something that did work. Do you have thoughts, Cynthia? No, I, I think it really goes back to bioindividuality and the N of one and the, the recognition that it may take multiple changes to your lifestyle to see some significant improvements. And I'm sure the hydration and the reduction in processed sugars really made a big difference. And, and you know, one thing I want to point out that Sarah mentioned was that she stopped eating chocolate at night. And so it's probably a good reminder just to remind people that we have more insulin sensitivity during the day. So if you're already kind of leaning in the direction of insulin resistance, or you're noticing your blood sugars are higher, you really want to be examining like how close to bedtime you're eating, what you're eating for your last meal. And, and sometimes if you're deciding to have more discretionary carbohydrates, maybe easier and better to do that earlier in the day. Awesome. 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 And I think the vitamin C piece was because it lowers uric acid, I believe. I think that's the connection with that. So again, listeners, tune in next week to learn more. I love Rick Johnson. I think we all like, I, I think resounding, I say to everyone, he's one of the most delightful interviews I've had easily in my podcasting career. He's just infectious. Everyone, I mean, that's like my number two downloaded episode of the year. Not exaggerating. I should go and look at my... Stats. I'm very OCD about that. That's why some people come back multiple times. I'm like, your content really resonated and I need to bring you back. I should probably do that. Yeah. I, I rarely look at the numbers. I probably should. I don't know. I'm very competitive with myself. It's like, I want to know like each month that there are more people like curious and interested and it allows me to to see what content really resonates. Like, obviously I think you're the same way. You wouldn't bring someone on the biohacking podcast, unless you were like super interested in them as an individual and their work and their research. But it's always amazing to me. There are sometimes surprises. Sometimes I'm surprised by, you know, something will really resonate or other times I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like the best interview. And then it doesn't get as much, you know, downloads. And so I just find it all fascinating. I was just thinking about that because I was thinking about how people I bring back, it's honestly, it's based on who I really like. I know I've brought back some people that, again, I'd have to go look at the numbers, but my gut tells me they probably weren't necessarily the highest in the numbers, but I just really want to talk to them again. So yeah, it's it's an interesting balance. It's really fun. I think it's really fun, like how we get to choose the lineup, you know, like really creating shows. Absolutely. Absolutely. Speaking of amazing people that 
I know you've had on twice. I've had on twice. I mean, Rob Wolf, I could talk to. He's another person I could just talk to for hours. Between the two shows, I think it's been, is it four? It's, it's definitely three. He can come on anytime. I'll, I'll just have like the Melanie Avalon biohacking Rob Wolf podcast. That's awesome. He's such a cool guy. Just so humble, down to earth, and just a great human. I know. Oh, and that was super fun. Cynthia and I both got to interview Mark Sisson last week, and it was back to back. Yeah, we had an embarrassing kerfuffle on my end, which I'm grateful that I have a friend who intervened immediately, but there was a miscommunication between my podcast team member and what time Mark said he was available. And so I was like on the fly. (laughs) So I I think it turned out fine, but it was one of those things where you can't apologize enough when you're leaving someone at that level in their business, wondering what you're doing. So anyway, I think it'll all, it'll all be fine, but still it was a little embarrassing. I, yeah, you and I talked about it right after it happened. I, I just would have been so flustered and in my head, but I'm sure like I'm, I'm sure he probably didn't think about it nearly as much as you did. No, he's probably like amateur. I think it was fine. I agree with you. What's really interesting about him is I was thinking beforehand because I've been a follower of him for so long and I know Elle really well. I know his co-author Brad really well, but I've never met him. And I had an idea of like what I thought he was going to be like, and he was exactly what I thought he was going to be like, which was I thought he was going to be just really nice and just really, really energetic. Because I feel like with people and interviews, everybody who I've had on has been so gracious and lovely. But sometimes you get the sense that I thought with Mark, I didn't feel like I was going to get any sense that this was like out of his way or anything like that. Like, this is what he does, you know? Like, I just thought he'd be like all energy and all in. And that's that was really the vibe I got, which was very inspiring because I think he's 76. Oh, 67, 67, 69, 69, but not 76. Sorry. Yeah, no, I was gonna say if he's 76, he looks pretty dang good. He was delightful and humble. I loved that he is very committed to his family. And a lot of the tail end of our discussion was about how did you find balance with your family? And he gave some really great insights and certainly things I got off and I was just like, wow, the greatest gift you can give your loved ones is time. Yeah, I love that. All right. Shall we go on to our next question? Absolutely. This is from Sia. Subject is help me please. My name is Sia. I'm 41 and pretty sure I'm premenopausal. My thyroid is a tad off and I'm trying to correct that. I started fasting November 15th and I started at 167 pounds and here it is April 23rd and I weigh 162 pounds. I've always been a healthy eater. I switch it up with OMAD and ADF and feel tired all the time. So it's been hard to work out. I'm sure because of thyroid. I listen to your podcast and have read your books and others from Dr. Fung. I know we're not supposed to compare ourselves to others, but I feel like I'm seeing super slow results. Can you give me some tips or what your thoughts are? Sincerely, Sia. All right, Sia. Thank you so much for your question. So first of all, with the thyroid stuff, I'm super curious, and this this is a good thing to talk about just for listeners in general. The hypothyroidism issue can be a really tricky one to tackle. And I think it's really, really important to work with a practitioner who's really knowledgeable in making sure they are addressing it correctly. So by that, I mean testing all the levels they need to be testing. So, you know, the free T3, the 
the total and free T4, the TSH, the reverse T3. L. Russ has a really great book called The Paleothyroid Solution for anybody who wants to get, I believe, the most comprehensive overview of hypothyroidism and what you need to be testing and how diet affects it. And she's actually, I've been texting her this week about my own panel because the doctor, and I was telling Cynthia about this as well, I've been working with a conventional doctor on my, cause I have hypothyroidism and I'm, I'm on thyroid medication. This has been a whole experience just hitting home again, how important it is to take agency in your own health and your relationship with your doctor and the labs that are being drawn and stuff like that. Because I've been working with a conventional doctor for a while on my thyroid and I was working with her because I found her within my insurance plan and she actually was open to testing everything. And what she was prescribing me was what I also thought I should be on and I was feeling good. But actually the most recent time around, she changed my dosage. I was telling Cynthia about it, but basically it it was incorrect. Like the the way she changed it didn't make sense math-wise for what she was trying to do. So all of that to say, I'm all over the place right here, but I think it's really, really important to work with a practitioner who really can help you. So I'd, I'd be curious, Sia, when you say it's off, like I'm wondering in what regards it's off, like is it, what are you low in? How are you addressing it? Is it with the medication and how is that being adjusted? And then all of that to say, and I'm super curious to hear Cynthia's thoughts on this, but if you are struggling with hypothyroidism and this issue, it sounds like you're doing a lot of fasting and I I probably would not be doing like all of that fasting, especially like the ADF. What are your thoughts? Oh, I have so much. For full disclosure, Sia, I also have hypothyroidism, probably have Hashimoto's, but I've never had positive antibodies, probably because we're gluten-free. So there's a lot that I think about. When someone's in perimenopause and we're talking about hormesis, which is this hormetic stress in the right amount at the right time, there are a couple things that I think about. You know, you mentioned that your values are off and I don't have a sense of what your labs were, but we have to think comprehensively. We have to think about what's your sleep quality? Are you exercising? Are you eating an anti-inflammatory diet? And we know with an autoimmune issue, you really have to work on gut health. And, you know, I don't know if you're just on synthetic medications like Synthroid. And if you are, that's totally okay. That's synthetic T4. But if your body can't actively convert T4 to the active form of thyroid hormone, which is T3, that could explain why the weight, the scale isn't really budging and why you're so tired. But the fact that you're so symptomatic, you're very tired, that should be a clue that you need to back up the bus. I would stop doing these really long fasts because in and of itself, that is a stress to the body. I would absolutely positively work with a thyroid specialist, whether that's an endocrinologist, an integrative medicine, or an open-minded primary care provider, and make sure that they're looking at cofactors. I would ensure they're looking at iodine and magnesium and zinc and your B vitamins and looking at inflammatory markers I see a lot of women that in early perimenopause are becoming insulin resistant, and it could very well be it's a combination of multiple factors that are contributing to why you feel so poorly. Weight loss resistance is more often than not because of multiple factors. It's not just one factor. And so I think this really speaks to doing more digging. I would imagine it is not just your thyroid. It could also be adrenals. It could be, you know, low progesterone in relationship to estrogen. 
It could be your sleep quality. Don't give up hope. You just need more information. And I would absolutely positively back off on those long fasting windows. There's just no way you're going to be able to get in enough protein in one meal a day to be able to properly fuel your body at this point. And it sounds like the fatigue is what you really need to use as your gauge. Like you can do fasting when you're not quite so tired. And it might just be that you start with a 12-hour window of not eating and slowly opening that up. But I, I really do fervently believe that you need more information. And I love Elle's book. Elle's a fantastic resource. I also think about, and I'm turning my head to look because I have a bunch of thyroid books. I actually did a reels on this, talking about my favorite thyroid resources. We'll put the list of books that I generally recommend. I've got four or five, but I think Elle Russ's book is an excellent first choice to kind of help educate you. She's all about empowerment. And she really comes at it from the perspective of she suffered for years because she was navigating a world in which they weren't looking at the full picture. And I think it's important to really understand like a full thyroid panel is a TSH. It's a free and total T3 and T4. It's a reverse T3. It's antibodies. You can, you know, split hairs beyond that, but it really is important to have all those factors. And if you're on medication that is not supporting your body adequately and you're not getting the right labs, not the errors on your part, but the practitioners or not ordering the right labs, it may not illuminate what is going on and giving you the full picture. So, so good luck and definitely keep us posted. I actually emailed my doctor and I sent her, I was like, I don't know how she's going to take this, but I sent her a really long thing. And I tried to approach it to her as not me saying like, this is the way it is, but saying like, oh, I'm curious about this. Like, what do you think about this? And it was resources surrounding a discussion we had been having because her concern, for example, and Elle was telling me about how this is such an issue is like oftentimes when people are on thyroid medications, if they're on T3 medication, it can, or it should in a way, suppress their TSH. And so doctors treat to not lower the TSH. And so then they can possibly keep patients in a hypothyroid state when arguably the TSH should be lowered when you're on T3 supplementation. So that's a little bit of a nuance and I don't know if it's relative at all to CS situation, but it could be something to consider for people. And I think it's really hard. I mean, I have to be honest, I'm, you know, I have functional training and I can tell you that if I had not been seeing an integrative medicine provider at the time of my diagnosis, I probably would have been left floundering for a few years. And so there are still individuals that are open-minded. Like I know Melanie works with someone who takes insurance that's open-minded. These unicorns do exist. You know, another resource that I generally direct people to is www.ifm.org, where you can look for practitioners in your area that have functional medicine training and tend to be a little bit more open-minded. I certainly have done a lot of podcasts with thyroid experts, some of whom are clinicians. Recently, it was Dr. Amy Horneman is one. I know she works throughout the United States. I think about Dr. Eric Balkovich, who's wonderful and has a new book coming out. I think about Elle. And there's someone else that we have scheduled for the podcast that's coming out this fall. But there's definitely a lot of resources. Dr. Amy Myers has a lot of resources online. And like I mentioned, I will make sure that we put it in the show notes, some of the books that I kind of give like a stepwise progression because I probably have every book that's out there on thyroid the ones that I think that I reference the most for patients. But Elle's book is a great first step for sure. Awesome. So again, we'll put links to all of that in the show notes and the show notes have a full transcript as well. 
All right. So the next question, actually, it's a good question to piggyback on that. This comes from Gab and the subject is podcast question. And Gab says, hi, I have PCOS, hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's. My Hashimoto's antibodies have gone down, so it feels like I'm mainly dealing with hypothyroidism and PCOS now. I love eating keto because it finally makes my chronic inflammation go down, my bloating has resolved, and I don't feel as swollen. However, I feel very restricted and limited with the way I'm eating, and I'm still not losing fat. I have a huge laundry list of food sensitivities and allergies due to my Hashimoto's, and I've been feeling so much better after staying away from all the foods that came back reactive from the test. I do take HCL and digestive enzymes along with one berberine a day at my meal, which is always in the evening. Melanie and I are very alike. My eating window is later at night. I'm in a bittersweet spot. The information of knowing my trigger foods for sensitivities is helpful, but now I feel like I have to eat this careful and clean forever just to feel okay. I'm trying to lose six to 10 pounds and the fat won't come off. I'm only five foot one, so even two pounds is very noticeable for me and physically uncomfortable. I've heard you talk about this before on what exactly is the body running on if carbs are low. I stay away from all processed foods and PUFAs, and I've been doing protein-sparing modified fast days here and there. My fat is also not high because I know eating high fat can stall fat loss. Nothing is working. The stubborn fat I'm trying to lose is on my arms and thighs. What is going on if my body is not using fat stores as fuel and energy? What am I running off of then? I'm in no way eating at a calorie surplus, and I'm definitely not eating enough to maintain either, yet here I am maintaining or gaining? Am I just doomed because of my hyperthyroidism? I'm finally on a medication that is starting to make me feel a little better each month. I take LDN, a B-complex, and I am constantly searching supplements and protocols. I take magnesium and CBD at night, etc., etc. I do Pilates, light weight training, walking, and yoga. When I used to do heavier weights training, I bulked up. This is probably due to my PCOS and the fact that I am testosterone and DHEA dominant. I know this probably means cortisol is my root issue. Does this mean my body refuses to lose fat because I'm running off cortisol? My body feels best when I'm doing low impact workouts and walking. It still is infuriating because I'm not eating enough and I know starvation mode is half myth, half reality, but you said it best on one of your pods. You just can't gain fat if you're not eating enough to gain. I've heard high insulin could also cause fat retention, but my insulin isn't a problem. I got a Nutrisense CGM sent to me, so I'll be setting up that soon to see what's happening. Please help. I feel hopeless and helpless and that my metabolism is permanently shut down. I love you both and I've been binging both of your podcasts, no pun intended. I'm losing my mind. I just want to lose the last pounds of fat, but nothing I do works. Oh, Gab, I have to tell you, I when I read this before we got on today and then listened to, to Melanie share your podcast question, you need to give yourself some grace. I sense that you're really, really hard on yourself. And I don't know how long you've been on this journey. I think that sometimes when I sense that patients are really frustrated, we have to really simplify things. And, you know, there is the power of our minds. And I, I think that we have to look at things from different angles. And, you know, when we're, we're talking about weight loss and it's something we want really badly, 
I always remind people that we we have to get our bodies better balanced in order to lose weight. I know that that's very often the the point of frustration that people, as an example, will come to me and say, I want to lose weight, but really it's all the other things going on. So I don't know how long you've been fasting. I don't know if you're doing OMAD. You've mentioned several times in this this question that you are concerned you're not eating enough. And the the concept of your body perceiving that there's not enough food coming on board can absolutely positively negatively impact your metabolism. And so I think that we have to be very, very clear that if you're eating at a caloric deficit all the time and you've got thyroid issues and you've got some PCOS and you've got food sensitivities and you're being really strict with your nutrition and you know you're you're doing this exercising it tells me that there's a degree of intensity that needs to first be backed off of but i don't know your age uh, so i don't know if you're you know still in your peak fertile years or you're in perimenopause or menopause but there's a lot to unpack and i think it really needs to really reflect on simplifying your program because this degree of intensity is telling me that you're putting your body under an incredible amount of stress, whether you recognize it or not. And if you were, you know, in the hierarchy of hormones, as I know, you know, Melanie's talked about, and I've talked about a lot on podcasts, you know, if cortisol's up, glucose is going to be up and your body is really going to struggle on a lot of different levels. You know, when, when I work with PCOS patients, yes, sometimes they do very well with a, you know, a 12 hour, 13, 14 hour feeding, you know, period during the day where they're not eating. And maybe they do well on low carbs. That doesn't mean everyone does well. And, you know, I had Dr. Sarah Gottfried on recently, and I know Melanie also recently interviewed her. And she talks a lot about that there are women who, due to their own genetic makeup, do need some degree of discretionary high quality carbs in order to get that proper T4 to T3 conversion. So inactive to active thyroid hormone. So I think there's a lot here to to work with, but I think you also need to start giving yourself some grace. And I don't say that to be flippant or unreceptive because I've been that person who was, you know, the scale was stuck and I was frustrated and I'm not a very tall person. I'm only 5'3", so I completely understand that. But at one point, and certainly with myself personally, we had to kind of like level the playing field and start over. And it may be that you need to back off on the intensity of what you're doing. And the last thing that I just want to add is depending on how old you are, like Melanie is a very young, metabolically flexible woman. So Melanie can eat into late into the evening and, and it works for her. But I find for women as they're getting closer to middle age, and certainly, you know, I'm 50, so I'm at a different life stage that doesn't work as well. We know we're less insulin sensitive during during the evening, and that might be another another reason to kind of reflect on when you're eating, what you're eating, and being a little bit kinder to your body. So lean into the lifestyle, give yourself some grace. Maybe there's value in working with a practitioner who's going to be able to look at you know a whole system as opposed to just one issue related to having an underactive thyroid and PCOS, but all these pieces of the puzzle will fall into place eventually. Yeah, I thought that was an incredible answer. Could not have said it better. I had quite a few thoughts and they all are very similar and echo what Cynthia said. It's a really good question. You keep asking, you know, if you're literally not eating enough to maintain or gain, how are you maintaining or gaining? So that's a reality where if you are maintaining or gaining, 
you are eating enough to maintain or gain, but it might not be because you are eating a lot. It's more likely the hormonal system that your body is in and it's learning how to adapt and how to deal with what you are taking in. So it can feel like no matter how much you restrict, your body is going to just maintain at that. Or, I mean, you're saying gain. It's really, really interesting, especially the more I learn about the book I'm reading right now. I'm really excited. I'm going to be interviewing. Do you know Ari? Is it Ari Witten? Yes, he's on my schedule. Okay. Are we both for his Eat for Energy? Have you read the book yet? Mm-mm. I just started it. A lot of it is talking about the mitochondria, and it's just making me realize more and more how, because the thesis thus far, I just started the book, but the primary thesis is that you know chronic fatigue and all of these health issues really like the root of them is in the mitochondria. So, you know, if the mitochondria are not producing energy or shutting down their energy production, we're going to have all of these experiences. And so that's a very hormonal thing. So like, so like the mitochondria not producing as much energy as they should be, that's like what they're doing because of the environmental stressors that they are exposed to. That's a language of your body. And that's why the answer, I believe, is, and Cynthia, you know, said this, is in a, a rebalancing. Like the, the answer is likely in a more broad lifestyle shift change in all of this rather than, because you say that you're, you know, looking for supplements and like trying all these different things. And the answer probably is not there. I am really curious to see what you learn with the Nutrition CGM that might be helpful, seeing how your blood sugars are reacting to things. Oh, I, I did want to comment on that you say you know that you don't have issues with insulin. And I'm wondering how you know that, especially if you still have active PCOS that is often linked to insulin. So I would find it interesting if your insulin is great and you're experiencing all these issues and have PCOS. Like that would seem a little bit like an anomaly to me. So I do wonder if maybe insulin is still high for you. But going back to the dietary approach, because it sounds like what you're doing is you really want to be doing keto and you're doing a very restrictive, sounds like a low fat version of keto. And it doesn't seem to be working. There are two big paradigm shifts that I would suggest trying. So one would be going higher fat on the keto, but adding those fats from C8 MCT oil. So basically eating what you're eating now, but adding in a, this is just something to try. I'm not saying this this is like necessarily the answer, but if you add in a lot of fat from C8 MCT oil, you can stay in this keto state that you want to be in And that's a very metabolic fat in that it stimulates energy production. Like it can really stroke your metabolism and it itself is not easily stored as fat. So it might be something that can give your your body a signal of abundance while supporting a fat burning state. It's just something to try. Option number two, and Cynthia touched on this, going on a higher carb approach. So we've had a lot of people throughout the years reach out to this show who have been doing low carb, like they're just wedded to low carb and they just, you know, are convinced that keto is the only way that things are going to work. And we've suggested, or I've suggested trying like a actually, and I know Cynthia was talking about Sarah Goffrey's approach, which is still a ketogenic approach, but with more carbs. But I would also like to suggest that and, or an actually high carb approach. 
a lot of people switch to a high carb, low fat approach, still whole foods based, still high protein. And that is like the thing. I can't tell you how many people I've suggested this to. And then they reach back out and say, wow, like this, I got my energy back. I started losing weight again. So that's something to try. I know it can be really scary, especially if you are scared of carbs, but it's something to try. And to clarify, I like with the high carb doing a lower fat approach because then you're you're not hitting your body with fat and carbs at the same time in a high amount, which I think for a lot of people does not work that well for metabolic health. Yeah, those are just some of my thoughts. Any follow-up thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's really the end of one. So, you know, it's it's definitely on this journey and there's no one size fits all. But I think if you're too fervently trying to move too many levers all at the same time, it's going to be hard to know what's effective and what has been helpful. But I, I think getting getting things back to really simplistic, to a really simplistic kind of methodology is the best starting point and just giving yourself grace because I know how frustrating it can be to be weight loss resistant. I've now been there twice in my, you know, forties. And so I, I think it's important to just understand that there's some imbalanced part of your systems. If you look at, you know, your body as a system, there's something that's imbalanced that's creating this resistance. And once you figure out what it is, it will fall into place. And also something to consider because we don't know what your weight is. It's also possible to evaluate the weight that you're looking to lose. And I'm all for people wanting to lose whatever weight they want to lose. Like no judgment. People can do whatever they want. But these six to 10 pounds, are they the last six to 10 vanity pounds or are they, you know, are you coming from a higher weight? It might be that where your body is right now is a very healthy weight and losing those six to 10 pounds are going to be something that will be hard just because depending on what your weight is right now, they're not something that your body has any intention of losing because it doesn't foresee that as something that it needs to be. If you're like a completely, you know, normal weight or on the lower side of normal. So something else to consider. Absolutely. But first and foremost, give yourself grace. All right. Shall we go on to our next question? Yes. This is from Christina, confused on eating in window. Hello. I'm so excited to start this journey with intermittent fasting. I am four days in and doing a 16-8. So far, it's been good. However, I feel like I'm only cutting out breakfast and a snack. I am a CrossFitter, so I'm used to eating nonstop through the day. Side note, on break from CrossFit as I have been on and off since October, hello, sinus season and weight gain. So I've been having my normal lunch, grilled chicken, broccoli, cauliflower, sweet potatoes, and red potatoes, followed up with mixed nuts, snack, and then dinner, which varies, but I try to stick to protein and veggies. I'm wondering if this is too much. I'm typically hungry by lunch. As for the snack, I worry it's just out of habit. Any recommendations on breaking the constant eating once I open my window? Also, I have now been craving pineapple listening to your podcast all day at work. So I switched from nuts to a bowl of fresh fruit, pineapples, strawberries, red grapes, cantaloupe, watermelon as of today. Thanks for the advice and looking forward to this journey. All right, Christina, thank you for your question. I think you answered your question when you asked us <laughs> about, well, you said you were wondering if it's too much and for the snack you worry, it's just out of habit. So it sounds like you have a pretty intuitive idea that the snack you're eating, you're not actually hungry for. I don't want to put words in your mouth, Cynthia, but 
Haven't you talked before about how you are not a fan of snacks? So I'm generally, generally not. I think sometimes maybe we didn't have, like as an example, she's giving a good example of like protein and some healthy carbs and and maybe she needed to add some fat to that meal to maybe keep her satiated because, you know, she was going towards nuts and, and whether or not that's by habit or it's by her body just needing to kind of feel like they're fully satiated. I sometimes feel like, you know, if you're using those carbohydrates, it's fine to use a little bit of olive oil or butter or something that's going to keep that satiety. So I don't know if she's just not getting enough nutrient density in that meal. Obviously, that's a clean meal, but maybe there's not enough nutrient density there. And that could be that could be what's driving that. I know for myself personally, like today was my first day back in the gym doing a heavy lifting day. And I definitely am finding like my first meal that I had was definitely there was more 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 substance to it than on a day that I'm not exercising as as fervently. And CrossFit is intense. The other thing that I think about is I don't know how young this woman is, but are you exercising for your menstrual cycle? You know, your follicular phase from the day you start bleeding up until ovulation, if you have a typical 28-day cycle, you can get away with more intense types of exercise. But if you're after ovulation closer to when you're going to start bleeding, your body's going to struggle a bit more. You're going to have more cravings for, you know, some carbohydrate-rich foods. You may not be able to work out as intensely. And so really examining if you're still menstruating where you are in your cycle to kind of lean towards what will work best for you. The other thing is, if you look at people like Dr. Stacey Sims, who's anti-fasting, but does a lot of research in women's physiology and athletes. So we're talking about a very small subsect of the population. Again, the menstrual cycle is important. You know, where you are training at the level you're training is important to really be cognizant of how that's going to impact your recovery you know, do you really want to be restricting food if you're training for something? So those are the things that kind of come up in my head. And definitely as listeners are leaving questions in the future, I would encourage them to at least give us some contacts. Like, are you 35 or are you 50? Are you like 25 or are you 40? Because that can help guide some of the suggestions that we make. Yeah. And so, and it sounds like if I'm reading it correctly, so she's not doing any CrossFit right now. I think the issue is that she's used to eating a lot from doing CrossFit, but now she's not doing CrossFit. And so she's wondering if this is all just habit from her CrossFit days. But she seems pretty intuitive. I mean, when people say, I wonder if it's X, they generally probably already have a sense of what may may need to be adjusted. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So as far as, it sounds like you're eating the exact same amount of food that you're eating when you were heavily doing CrossFit. And now you're wondering if it's too much I know it sounds really simple, but you're asking how do you stop the habit of, you know, eating constantly the whole time? And there's a magic to just creating some rules, some like yes, no rules that you stick to and trying it. So, so rather than saying, I'm going to eat my meal and then I'm going to try not to have a snack and, or maybe I'll have like a little bit of a snack and you could just say, I'm not having snacks. And I know that sounds like very simple, but it's approach that you can stick to. So you can have your meal and, and have it in a set place, like in the the kitchen. And then when you're done with the meal, putting everything away and then like kitchen closed and like no snacks and not having, even not having the snacks in the house so that they're not accessible. And then holding yourself accountable and then having your, your dinner later. I think we can empower ourselves a lot more than we think we can if we just set up a rule that we say we're going to follow and then we 
you know, follow it rather than trying to follow it, which is like a, a nuance, a small nuance with language, but I think it makes a big difference. So shall we do one more question? Sure. All right. So we have one more question from Michelle. The subject is blood work. And I feel like this is a really good question for Cynthia. Michelle says, good afternoon. I've been doing IF since March 28, 2021, and I love it. I'm 39 years old and I'm having issues with blood work. My blood work is always good, but I've always had low iron. This past time it was 8.6. So my doctor encouraged me to really take my iron for three months and take ibuprofen a few days before my super heavy periods to decrease the flow. Taking the ibuprofen actually works. My last test, my iron was up to 12, but my sodium, chloride, and potassium were all off. Any ideas of what's going on? Could this be due to fasting? I use the sauna several times a week and I do hot yoga. I'm going to have it rechecked next week, but I wanted to see if anyone else had these issues. Thanks in advance, Michelle. And now, Cynthia, now that I read this, I see what you're saying. So thoughts on that? Yeah, well, there's there's a lot. There's a lot here. I think I think Michelle is actually referring to her hemoglobin going from 8.6 to 12. So it's definitely heading in the right direction. First of all, she's 39. So this is perimenopause when our bodies are you know, heading towards, we're, you know, 10 to 15 years out from menopause and our ovaries are producing less progesterone. So we have this relative estrogen dominance, which can contribute to heavy menstrual cycles amongst other symptoms. So that's, that's number one. Number two, if she's doing a lot of exercise and she's doing the infrared sauna, you can absolutely lose discretionary electrolytes. I actually just did a podcast with the amazing Rob Wolf on this particular topic because I, we get so many questions. And so, yes, you can effectively lose sodium chloride, magnesium, potassium with sweating. You can have renal losses in your urine. And so if you are not replacing the electrolytes after sauna and yoga, you absolutely need to be. In fact, I generally recommend that people are using electrolytes throughout the day, especially if they're fasting, but then you add in the exercise and all the extra sweating and you need to replace not only the water that you've lost, but also the electrolytes. So a couple different things. This is perimenopause. You know, your, your heavy menstrual cycles will probably persist and continue. There's a lot of different ways to address that, but it sounds like relative estrogen dominance. But most importantly, and the thing that I think will be most beneficial is to replace the electrolytes. I have a product called Simply Hydration that you can take in a fed or a fasted state. And then I love element, Rob Wolf's product. My favorite is orange salt. And I would say in our family, the the next big flavor is grapefruit, which unfortunately they only have out in a limited amount. But those are definitely some options. You want to salt your food and you want to be making sure that you're staying ahead of those electrolyte losses. I don't know what your numbers were, so they may just be suboptimal. Or if they were significant, I would imagine this, this healthcare practitioner probably would have sent you home with some recommendations. So those are my thoughts. What do you think, Melanie? Yeah, I thought that was great. And um, for listeners, Element is actually a sponsor on today's episode. So you can, I think it's in the pre-roll. So you can listen to that to get a free offer and I think a discount on electrolytes. So check that out. They just changed it. It's some offer, (laughs) Um, but I think it's a discount. And yeah, regarding the iron, the hemoglobin. So... I have struggled historically with anemia and mine got very bad, 
very, very bad. So mine got to like four. I thought I was dying. And the reason I bring that up is you're asking if it could be due to fasting. So my historical struggle, so now I very intensely monitor my my iron panel. Like its changes and its fluctuations have been pretty independent of my fasting experience. I mean, there are a lot of potential causes and your doctor hopefully talk to you about this, but there are a lot of causes for anemia and the inability to keep up your hemoglobin or keep up your ferritin, which is the storage form of iron. It can be internal bleeding, which is what they thought it was with me because mine was so severe. It can be absorption issues, like just not being able to absorb. People with celiac often have this issue. It can be, you could have normal iron levels, but not have ferritin because your body's not converting it to ferritin or hemoglobin is just not building up. I'm actually about to read a book. I'm really excited. Do you know Dr. Morley Robbins? Heard of him. He wrote a book called, I think, Cure? Like, And his whole, I haven't read it yet, but he's going to be coming on my show. And apparently he talks all about the copper iron relationship and that whole role. So I think at least a reason that the body struggles so much with iron is because it's actually a very inflammatory compound. So so it's ironic because we need it. It's vital to our life. We would be dead without it. I mean, I I like I said, I literally felt like I was dying when I was that anemic. It does create oxidative stress. It's inflammatory. It can potentially feed pathogens. So the body is very, very intense in regulating it, sort of like with blood sugar, how blood sugar can be toxic. So the body's really intense about regulating that. And so there are so many places that things can go wrong. <laughs> so like where you're getting it from, where you're absorbing it. So all of that to say, I don't believe the fasting is the cause of that. It's probably something else. And it's probably something where you really need to work with a knowledgeable practitioner to find the root of it. I will say what's worked for me for keeping up my iron. Actually, I know you're really good friends with her, right? Dr. Cochran. Are you friends with Terry? Yes. Very good friends. She made the suggestion to supplement with chlorophyll to boost iron. And I found that really helpful. I also supplement with grass-fed spleen. That has the highest amount of heme iron of basically any animal product that you can get. So I currently use ancestral supplements. If I make my own organ supplements down the line, I definitely want to make a spleen one, but that might be something to try. And I can put a link in the show notes. I have a, a discount code for them, I think. But yeah, the iron one is tricky. So really quickly, do you have thoughts on her taking the ibuprofen for the periods? I know that it helps with prostaglandins, and I think that's that's part of it. When I read that, I was like, oh, she's estrogen dominant. And so until you address that, that persists, and then it goes into the synthetic hormones and IUD and ablation and hysterectomy. I mean, that's that's what's coming for her, unfortunately. That's the allopathic model. I managed to get through perimenopause without any of the above. I'm happy to say Thank God. Congrats. All right. Well, hopefully that was helpful, Michelle. And definitely feel free to update us with anything. This has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go. If you would like to submit your own questions for the show, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. 
This was definitely an episode where you want to check out the show notes. We have talked about so many things. So everything as well as a transcript will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 272. And then you can follow us on Instagram. I am Melanie Avalon. Cynthia is Cynthia underscore Thurlow underscore. And we are IF Podcast. And definitely tune in next week. Again, I mentioned it before, but Rick Johnson will be our special guest next week. And Cynthia, have fun on your travels. I will. I'm so excited. We, I mean, I, I can't, you know, it's it's hard to believe the past two years we have not been back to Europe. And so we are headed to the Czech Republic and we start in Prague and end up in Budapest. So I haven't been to Eastern Europe with my kids and super excited to unplug with them. Well, I'm really excited for you. You deserve it after all of the the book launch. I mean, you're coming out of like the storm. So Oh yeah. It's like that's a whole that's a whole conversation in and of itself. I'm like, I am burned out. I need a break. So I'm super excited. But in my absence, I know everyone will love hearing from Rick who I put on a pedestal. I know. It'll be great. So, all right. Well, I will talk to you in a few weeks then. Sounds good. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, everything we discussed on this show does not constitute medical advice and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. If you enjoyed the show, please consider writing a review on iTunes. We couldn't do this without our amazing team. Administration by Sharon Merriman. Editing by Podcast Doctors. Show notes and artwork by Brianna Joyner. Transcripts by Speech Docs. And original theme composed by Leland Cox and recomposed by Steve Saunders. See you next week.